ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. And the uncertainty surrounding China's sputtering economy will continue to be felt around the world. And that affects everybody who sells to China, which of course includes a lot of people in Australia. The Australian share market has been having a pretty rough time lately. And it's mainly because our biggest trading partner, China, keeps churning out bad news about its economy. As you've been hearing, there is increasing concern about the Chinese economy. Demand for its exports is weak and domestic demand is slowing as well. And there are fears that its debt-laden property sector, which drives about a quarter of economic activity there and has already seen some huge defaults, is going to crash. It is not good at all. China is our biggest export market, of course, so it's not surprising that there's a lot of if China sneezes, Australia catches a cold about. James Lawrenson's the director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS. James, what do you make of this sort of sentiment? Yeah, well, first thing to say is that the narrative's understandable. I mean, China's the world's largest or second largest economy, depending upon how you measure it, and it is our biggest trading partner by far, daylights in second place. So I'm not surprised. Um, but the fact is, is when you look at China's economic ups and downs right now, but also you know a decade or more ago, there's never been a tight relationship between um, economic ups and downs in China and the value of Australia's exports to China. Okay, well, I want to unpack that. But there's there's a couple other things that we can't not talk about first, and that is because we've had these trade issues with China, which have been real. So we've had this dispute over barley, which has only just been resolved, and it's cost hundreds of millions in lost sales. We've had a dispute with wine, which I don't think is sorted out yet. There's been big problems with cotton and lobster and, and timber, and it has really affected the industries here. Right, But at the same time, uh, the big ticket items in the Australia-China relationship um, have been unaffected. And so if you look at the numbers in 2021, for example, that was when that whole suite of trade punishments from Beijing were hitting Australian industry. The total value, the aggregate value of Australia's exports to China actually kept going up. Uh, We kept selling iron ore, we kept selling LNG, lithium's another big new area of trade, up to uh, $19 billion last year. Um, And so even with those disruptions, which were real, you're right, um, the aggregate numbers remained resilient. It's not just the news media, though, is it? I mean, the Treasurer has been referring to China's slowdown because that's what's prompted this latest stuff. The Chinese economy's slowing down and there are concerns about it as like a big challenge for us going forward. Yeah, it's not surprising the Treasurer has a particular take on this because one area where ups and downs in China can affect the Australian economy is via the revenue um, that flows into the federal government's coffers. So, for example, if there was a sharp crash in the iron ore price, um, that would mean our Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, would have less um, revenue coming in that he could spend. But the Treasurer's situation is not the entirety of the Australian economy. Isn't the concern, though, not how... China's been going, but how it might be about to go. Yeah, well, I would say the growth numbers in China have been soft for some time. This isn't new. I mean, last year, for example, China only grew by 3%, which is a a record low for China. And some people, well, I think even myself included, would uh, look at that number and probably think it's a bit of an overstatement. And yet last year, our our export values to China kept growing. Looking forward, I mean, I just look at the people with money on the line. So in particular, I've got my eye on what um, our resources producers are saying, for Mm -hmm. example, and companies like BHP, they're saying, sure, 
sure um, China's not needing as much iron ore for steel production in property construction because that's a sector of the Chinese economy that is really struggling. Uh, but they're finding China's demand for steel in infrastructure and manufacturing, all those areas um, are still quite robust. So there's nothing in the available data suggesting a crash is, is on the horizon. Now, that's not saying it couldn't happen, but there's no hard data pointing there right now. Our big exports to China are goods. What about services, though? Because I think we forget about them. Uh, we do, and and they took a big hit, just like they took a hit to everywhere um, in during the COVID pandemic period. But I think the big news over the last month, at least, is we've had quite a lot of data come in now uh, suggesting that the Chinese market is coming roaring back. So let me just give you two quick examples. Uh, if you look at the visa application data from ch- would-be Chinese international students for July, they were actually higher than in July. 2019. So that's an extraordinary comeback. And I just saw some new tourism data that just came out this week. Uh, In January this year, Chinese tourism arrivals were only at 10% of January 2019 levels. Mm. In July, they're up to 52% of the same period in 2019. So that means in overall terms, the number of Chinese tourists arriving are actually in second place. They've overtaken the Americans and they're just behind the New Zealanders. I have a very unscientific kind of litmus test, which is because I go through Central Station when I come into work and Chinese tourists disappeared, of course, for years and they are back. Indeed, and that's exactly what the ABS, the data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, is, um, is is telling us as well. You make the point that if you look at the big picture, China's growth rate, this is part of a, a slowing that's been going on now for five years? Yeah, at least since I'd say 2017, 2018. And, and let's not forget, when we look, we, we do obsess on that percentage growth number, but of course the Chinese economy has been getting bigger and bigger over that entire period of time. So even if the percentage change is smaller, it's coming off a bigger base. So in terms of the new purchasing power being added to China's economy, even with a smaller growth rate, it's often much larger than it was 10 years ago. And we've been going okay throughout that five years. Trade disputes notwithstanding, on the big ticket items, we've been going okay. Exactly. That's If you look at the numbers in 2020, 21, 22, and into 2023, every single year, um, they've continued to increase. Is there maths on this? Is there anything we can say about how China's growth, their GDP number and how it changes year to year, affects us here in Australia? Yeah, probably the best we can do there is to look at economic modelling efforts. And so let me just give you one example there from our own central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia. They published a, a research paper a few years ago concluding if there was a, a five percentage point drop in the Chinese rate of GDP, um, the impact on the Australian economy would be minimal. They were suggesting that would knock off less than one percentage point of Australian growth. So Australian economy usually grows at two to three percent every year. They would suggest it was going to knock about 0.8 percentage points off that. So significant, but not sending the Australian economy into a recession. And then after three years, Australia's GDP would be just 0.3% less than it otherwise would have been. So uh, that's the best numbers I've seen. It's coming from our own central bank. Right. You also talk in the piece you've written about stabilisers. The Australian economy has a number of inbuilt features that cushion shocks from overseas. We don't even have to do anything. So, for example, tonight, Richard, if the iron ore price halved, I guarantee you in the first minute of markets opening tomorrow morning, the Australian dollar would depreciate. And that would, of course, improve the competitiveness of Australian exports across the board, all commodities to all countries. So that's an example of what economists call an automatic stabiliser. And the Reserve Bank of Australia, in in their modelling, they particularly point 
pointed out that that automatic stabiliser um, is very effective in cushioning shocks from overseas. Yeah, the Australian dollar is a proxy for commodity prices pretty much. Yeah, it's very sensitive to those changes. And so that, there's an inbuilt protection for the Australian economy. There is no getting away from the fact that China is still our most, by far, uh, most important export market. We have, given the trade disputes that we've had with them, I think our exporters have worked hard to find other markets. But you actually say we should have a bit of perspective about exporting altogether in a way. Yeah, the number that gets people's attention is that China accounts for about between 30 to 40% of our total exports, which is, of course, a huge number. But if you look at the value of Australia's exports to China, it amounts to around about 7 to 8% of Australia's GDP. Now, I'm not pretending that's small, but let me put it in a bit of context. Um, household, domestic household consumption in Australia accounts for around 50% of Australia's GDP. So if you're asking me, where is a recession in Australia? most likely to come from, um, I wouldn't be looking at trade with China. I'd be looking at a if there was a, a crisis in Australian consumer confidence, for Which, example, well, that is, would be a real worry. Currently there is well, there exactly a crisis, but consumer confidence <laughs> is, is not high in Australia at the moment. It would be significant though, isn't it? We can't get away from the fact that we are linked to the Chinese economy, especially through those big uh, commodity exports. And if there was a massive downturn, we would feel that. Yeah, but one thing I would say about Australia's real trade relationship with China, even in the commodity space, is that it's actually relatively more diversified than with our other trading partners. Now, I, I don't want to overstate that, uh, but the point is, for example, about 50% of our exports to Taiwan, uh, about 70% of our exports to India, um, consist of one good, coal. <laughs> so if coal prices collapse um, or during during the energy transition, I mean, that is going to be a very, very serious drag on the value of Australia's exports to those to those economies. Now, in contrast, um, iron ore prices, for example, they've about they've roughly halved over the last two years, and yet the value of our resources exports to China have continued to grow. Well, why is that? Um, well, it's because we don't just export iron ore, we don't just export coal, we also export LNG. As I said before, we've now got a nineteen billion dollar lithium trade going with China. Um, so that diversity of exports does help to cushion um, shocks that are affecting one particular good. Okay. James, it's been really interesting to get this perspective because it, it hasn't been one that we've heard a lot of. Glad to contribute it. James Lawrenson uh, from the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. In June, so three months ago, something happened that's never happened before. Consumer number 4 billion went to the shops. It's an estimate, of course, from the World Data Lab. But the real point is that there are about 8 billion people in the world. So half of the global population are now officially consumers. Wolfgang Fengler is at the World Data Lab. It's really significant because for the most time that we grew up, most of the world was poor. And so it's also a significant for somehow for us as humans to know that it's actually possible to move out of poverty into some decent middle class lifestyle. And then secondly, the global economy is not just dependent anymore, as we know, on the US or parts of Europe. But now Asia is also of equal portion in that global economic game. But it's mostly a story, a positive story around development. However, having said that, still half the world is not as fortunate and so still a long way to go. What does it take to be a consumer? How much do you need to have to be a consumer? 
we define it, and there's been a lot of research, is somebody who spends at least $12, 12 US dollars a day. That's $12 that you can make comparable. There's a concept called purchasing power parity because a coffee in Sydney and Melbourne costs something different than a coffee in Jakarta. And so you compare that. But so that $12 threshold is a reference. If you have a family, a family of four, that means you already spend $48, almost $50 a day. That type of consumer class, middle class lifestyle for somebody in, mm. in Indonesia, in India or in Thailand. How much is it going to increase in the next year or so? Yeah. So every year, you know, these 113 million people are being added now or the next year and they will spend 2.3 trillion, which is the same amount that Germany spends every year. So it's a way to think of a little more than a Germany is being added in people and about the same as Germany is being added in money. We've got this sustained growth of the consumer class despite the global financial crisis and then COVID and then war in Ukraine, high inflation. The, the momentum driving this is such that it, it keeps going despite those problems. You, you said it very well, it keeps going. It was actually only one year when the numbers went down and it was actually the COVID year. Um, even in the global financial crisis, because Asia and China did well, things kept going. Um, but um, it does, you know, that also is a message to government. So if you invest in education, invest in healthcare, if child mortality is down, then these children will live a, a more or less normal life. Also poorer people live live longer now. And so that then contribute to to that overall consumption. And we have other innovations and cheaper phones, cheaper possibilities to communicate. May not make many calls as a poor person, but you may receive them. So all of that connects them in some form and creates that positive underlying current. This is very much an Asian story at the moment. And uh, I understand that Asia is projected to contribute 81% of the new consumers in 2024, and India and China alone account for half of that. Yes. So it is an, an Asian story, and this decade will remain Asia's decade. But then also are these five countries, which we say call below the radar, that are also adding a lot. Indonesia first, with also 4 million, but then Pakistan, Bangladesh is the fastest mover, Vietnam and Philippines. And they have some also reached that level now because it makes a difference um, from all the research also that we did. If you have a, a $5 uh, um, you know, consumer spending position or $10 and um, Af many parts of Africa are still in this in the situation that Asia was 10, 15 years ago. And um, that's why some companies actually made big misjudgments to, to say, oh, Africa's consumer class is rising. Well, it's rising, but from a very, very low base. And so, but but in Asia, you have now this critical mass and the demographic transition helps because every person being added in Asia now is actually an adult and not, not a child anymore. Eventually, that will create a challenge, as we see in China, but now it's still this 10, 20, 30 years where Asia can ride that wave that every person that's being added in Asia is basically an adult, which then also in balance has more resources than a child. Looking at your numbers, in India's outpacing China, or it will do, it's going to be adding more people to the consumer class in India than, than China will. Um, absolutely. So we had this other tipping point, Richard, that now we'll, we'll hear much more about India's momentum than China's. Now, there's a few reasons. One is China's slowdown. But the other is that already today, China has a big number of 
consumers. So roughly speaking of both countries are the same size, right? 1.4 billion. But China has two consumers and one not consumer. And in India, it's the opposite. So one not consumer and two consumers, roughly. And so India has a lot of people that still can enter and are now about to enter. And then India's population is still growing while China's is about to stagnate. Now, you mentioned Africa, and I think the, the, the countries in particular are Egypt and Nigeria. They are further back, but starting to come on stream, yes? Yes. So, um, so first, Africa has 250 million so it, consumers, so it adds to the total, but it's a very small um, part. Well, Asia has roughly 10 times as many uh, consumers as Africa. Um, Nigeria has always been struggling and never fulfilled its potential, but there is some economic momentum in Nigeria adds a lot of people and it adds, uh, you know, also among those, it adds consumer class. And there is, and because the country has not more than 200 million people, some of the, the logical important part of the African consumer, of the sub-Saharan African consumer class still substantially behind Egypt. We've talked a bit about the, the rise of the consumer class in different parts of the world, but not every country's experiencing an increase. Some are in decline, aren't they? Germany, Japan is in the news, but then there's also other, you know, starting from Taiwan, Eastern European countries that uh, that have population decline and have or will experience it and have maxed out their consumer class growth. But also what's important is there are different also big demographic shifts and holds. So, for example, Germany, because our baby boomer cutoff was so extreme, will lose out on the 50-year-olds this decade. Countries like China actually will lose out on the 30-year-olds. So, so there are a number of, of also nuances in, in the consumer class in these less dynamic markets that are important to understand because companies target now like German cars into 50-year-old men. Well, there will be not so many left anymore in 10 years. So that may also need some rethink of the strategy. What are your projections for the consumer class at the end of this decade, which is only, after all, a bit over six years away? In the last decade, roughly, we had 120 million per year. And then obviously that came COVID, but after that, a very strong recoveries. And so if that basic momentum continues, and there's especially if you take the Asian perspective, no reason uh, to think otherwise, um, we'll get 5 billion by 2031 or 4.9 billion by 2030. So we could even make exactly the 5 billion mark by 2030. There will be another seven Germanys every year. India will be to reckon with because yes. there will be more than 300 million um, young consumers. Young consumers still will shape fashion, film, also food, and they will have not just the domestic uh, style, and but they probably will have also the confidence to not just copy Western styles. And so all of this we need to somehow get, get ready for. I think there's been some talk, but people don't necessarily understand the the significance of that yes, you know, that momentum that's just we're in the middle of it. Wolfgang, it's been really interesting. The research is fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was a big pleasure, Richard. Thanks a lot. Wolfgang Fengler is CEO of the World Data Lab. If you've ever got a new credit card or changed your bank, you'll be confronted by something how many goods and services you pay for every month. Car insurance on the 3rd, newspaper on the 9th, streaming service on the 11th, mobile on the 16th, and on and on and on and on, which is bad enough. 
Worse is when some of the things you're paying for, you're not using. You'd forgotten about them. They hadn't forgotten about you. Neil Mahoney at Stanford University wanted to know how much the businesses concerned are making out of our forgetfulness. We find looking across 10 popular subscription plans that companies are making between 20% more and 200% more because people aren't paying attention or find it difficult to cancel subscriptions that they no longer want. I think we should, first of all, kind of put out how common they are because my own experience is they seem to be increasingly common. No, that's exactly right. And what motivated me and, and my co-authors to start on the project was you know, our personal experience of paying for more and more things by subscription from TV to music to security to the food deliveries on the one hand. And on the second hand, we all had experiences where we'd pay for things for much longer than we intended. And we'd be looking through a credit card receipt or, you know, our spouse or a kid would say, you know, are we still subscribed to this? And we say, well, yeah, we are still subscribed, but we haven't used it in the last six months. So, You know, we had, through our personal experience, noticed that this was a sort of growing phenomenon. We, we wanted to measure how important it was for the economy more broadly. It, what it underlines, I think, Neil, is, is how much the subscription economy has grown in the last few years. I, I made a program about the subscription economy about, I think, three or four years ago. And it was a real thing in Australia, but not a big thing. It's more of a thing now. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, we, we were looking at data from the U.S. which showed that it had grown by a factor of four uh, over the last 10 years. And, you know, I, I think our research suggests one reason why is that companies can make much more money when they sell things via subscription than via sort of uh, one-off transactions. Mm. And one of the things that I think you probably capture is that Companies make it easy to sign up for things. It's a bit trickier to cancel. That's right. And, you know, we've been trying to come up with good names for this, but it's a little bit like a lobster trap. It's something that's easy to get into, but once you're inside, it's harder to get out. Uh, And so there have been some policy efforts in the U.S. and I know around the world uh, to try and make it just as easy to cancel as it is to subscribe. So, you know, hopefully there'll be some progress there, but this has been, you know, an issue. Well, of course, and, and I've been guilty of this myself at times too, not everybody scrutinizes their credit card accounts. For people who, who never do or who just aren't very financially literate, are they at risk of being exploited? My sense is that even the most financially sophisticated people would have busy lives. And if you're paying for dozens of things by subscription, it's very easy to you know, forget a couple subscriptions and pay for you know, months or, or even years after you've used the product. So I think that this is something where I think the, the requirements placed on individuals keeping track of dozens of subscriptions is, is really just too difficult for nearly anybody to do. Well, Neil, I want you to tell us a bit about your research because I understand you looked, I think you said earlier, you looked at 10 popular subscription services. 
That's exactly right. So, you know, in our research, uh, we started, you know, with a set of the most popular uh, subscription products, and you know, we narrowed our analysis to subscriptions that we could track uh, in a clean way in our data. And so, you know, we we paired that set of subscriptions with data from one of the large payment networks, one to sort of identify people who are paying for subscriptions, and then to ask a question, you know, how long would people subscribe if they were required or if they chose to pay attention to their subscriptions all the time uh, so that they wouldn't overpay? And what did you find when customers get a new credit card? Because that is the time, isn't it, that you often realize what you've got going out on a monthly basis. Exactly. So the key sort of aha moment in the paper was when we realized that we get to see what people would do if they were fully paying attention when their credit card expires or when they receive a new credit card in the mail. Because that's when they get an email asking them to resubscribe. And that's when they're forced to make what we call an active choice. Do I want to continue with this product or if I don't actively want to continue with this product, then I'll be unsubscribed. And and what we see in the data is around this period when people have to make an active choice, when they are necessarily paying attention, uh, that cancellation rates jump by a factor of four. Wow. And what effect does that have on company revenues when that happens? We find that because consumers are are not paying attention fairly high fraction of the time, company revenues are between 20 and 200% larger than they would be if consumers were paying attention every month. And I think the average you found was the average plan, uh, the estimate was 85% higher than they would be if people were making an active decision. That makes me wonder how reliant companies are on this. You kind of wonder if if some of them just wouldn't work as businesses if we were paying attention properly all the time. Yeah, our, our results do, you know, raise important questions about what companies would do if consumers, you know, were paying attention all the time. Would they increase the quality of their products? Would they cut the price? Uh, and there's probably some companies uh, which would have business models that, that don't actually make sense in an environment where consumers are fully paying attention. What impact might there be if companies were required to kind of bring this to our attention, to issue reminder renewal notices pretty regularly? So two points. One, you know, I think you and I you know, can realise just from introspection that subscriptions offer some convenience that if we were asked uh, every week, every month, whether we'd want to renew a subscription to a newspaper we liked or you know, our utility bill, that that would become a hassle because sometimes we would forget to sign up. But on the other hand, not being reminded at all and spending months or years subscribed to a product that we don't want is costing us a lot of money. And so what we do in the paper is we examine some intermediate options. For example, a regulation that required consumers 
uh, to pay attention every six months. Maybe companies would send them an email and say, you have to make an active decision to uh, continue with this product. And we find that such a policy would reduce the excess revenue that firms make by about half. So it would, would solve half of this problem, but wouldn't expose consumers to the hassle of having to decide every week or every month to continue with some product. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. Thank you for having me. Neil Mahoney is a professor of economics at Stanford University. And we're nearly done, but I wanted to let you know that next time on The Money, we'll hear about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. They're going to be a thing. We'll find out what that means. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. The show is produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. Talk next time. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 